Let's study the Word of God. I'm so excited to study His Word. Isn't His Word good? I hope uh, after the email yesterday that you had some time to kind of look through this text and study it and pray about it. Uh, We just sang that song, The Same Power, and I love that song because it has um, really ministered to me over the last few months. And I'm so grateful for the truth that it expresses, that the power of God is available to us, that God, by His mercy and by His love, by declaring us to be His children, has then expressed to us and given us His power and His strength. You remember when uh, Jesus went back up into heaven, He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and He's going to come to you, and He's going to give you power. Well, I don't know about you, but it's been a long week. And it's been a trying week. And it's been a confusing week. And the one thing that we can come back to when we have those times that are trying, actually two things. We can come back to the presence of the Lord because we know His presence is always there. And we can come back to His power. Whenever we feel weak, whenever we feel discouraged, whenever we feel clueless, God's power is there. And it's the power that defeated sin forever. It's the power that has broken uh, the bondage of, of sin on our lives forever. It's the power that declares us to be children of God who are secure forever for all eternity by the grace of God. That same power that has defeated sin and death is the power that's given us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost impossible to fathom. It's almost, it's almost beyond our comprehension to understand and appreciate enough. But it, source, it serves as a, a very great source of strength and comfort uh, during the times when our faith is being challenged. And it reminds us of a couple facts, a couple truths right at the start. One is that the Lord is unwavering in His faithfulness. I'm so glad we sang Great is That Faithfulness, and I didn't really connect that to the text until about uh, 45 minutes ago. But, but God is unwavering in His faithfulness. He never, ever, ever is unfaithful. Think of all the people and all the uh, situations in life where we felt unfaithfulness. God is never unfaithful. And His power and His strength completely exceeds whatever we might need. And that gives us confidence and it gives us endurance in the times when we really, really need it. That's, that's kind of the fundamental message uh, underneath this text this morning that we're going to look at in a moment. The second truth beyond God being unwavering in His faithfulness is that those times of having our faith kind of stretched and pulled out a little bit, where we feel a little bit uncomfortable, and we start to kind of go, ah, those times are absolutely essential to our spiritual maturity. And God not only allows them, but he designs them to, to make us more complete and make us more like Christ. Now, Paul knew that, and he knew it from experience. And as he writes this book, kind of later in his life, as he closes in on death, he realizes and talks about how many times he's had to live in that reality and how strong and faithful and mature believers need to be stirred by this truth. We studied a couple weeks ago in prayer meeting about being stirred by the Lord. Sometimes we need to be stirred up. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God and the power of God because when we understand the faithfulness of God and the power of God, we look 
excuse me, we look at it in terms of what God is doing and how God is forming us and shaping us on a daily basis to become more like Christ. The goal of being a Christian is not just to make sure we don't go to hell and to go to church and kind of be good. The goal of being a Christian is to be like Jesus Christ. That's why we bear his name. Every one of us, as a believer, is called to conform to Christ. And God is actively working. Everything God does is active. His word is living and active. The Holy Spirit, right now even, is actively teaching us. He's actively teaching me, even though I'm talking. I've asked him that it not be me talking, that it be him talking. So I have to be receptive too, that he's actively teaching us from his word. He calls us to active ministry. He calls us to be active evangelists and active ambassadors. There's nothing passive about Christianity. There's nothing passive about our walk. But here's the temptation that we constantly face. That temptation is to be very passive. To be dull toward the word of God and to be kind of uh, subtly resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit and to be kind of hesitant in our faith and kind of kind of lazy in ministry or whatever the case may be, lazy in evangelism. Hey, the, the, the constant push against us is to be passive. And if we really think about our last week and how it went, we might be surprised if we had complete discernment on it how many times we chose a passive approach to spiritual growth versus a very passionate and aggressive approach to spiritual growth. Whether it was time in the Word or time in prayer or, or, or somebody uh, really, there was an opening to talk to somebody about the gospel and we kind of just, were, we changed the subject or whatever the case may be. So many times the enemy is just trying to push and push and push and push to be passive. And when we do that, we know it's not pleasing to the Lord, but, but we still kind of do it. Now, God has given us the power not to be passive. God has fully equipped us to be active, living, strong, passionate, aggressive believers who love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other as ourselves. And that really is what comes through in Philippians. This is the book that lays out what that looks like. And you may remember from two weeks ago, since we did it last week, that the theme of Philippians, and if you weren't here, you can write it down, or if you forget, is how to live a joyful, contented life that exalts Jesus Christ in every way. Philippians is about how to live a joyful, contented life that exalts Jesus Christ in every way. And the, the text of the morning, verses 6 to 11 in chapter 1, kind of focuses on that second part more than the first. Now, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never known what it means to be redeemed from sin and to be changed spiritually, then, then this is a little foreign to you. You don't really uh, know, and maybe you're not asking what it means to exalt Jesus Christ in every way because it's not in your heart. It's not in your DNA. When we're not believers, when we haven't trusted in Christ, everything is about self. That's not a criticism. It's just a reality. The human nature, what is innate to our, uh, to our humanity, is to live for ourselves. 
But when you get saved, when you get redeemed, when God forgives you, exonerates your sin, changes your nature, and infuses the Holy Spirit into your life, that changes everything. Now it is all about exalting Jesus Christ. If you've been forgiven this morning, if you've been delivered from sin this morning, not only are you called to exalt Christ, but that should be the desire. And really, here's the hard part, there's no middle ground. One of the great delusions of the enemy that he's been so effective in perpetuating in the hearts of a lot of people is that middle ground is not only acceptable, but it's normal. And that because we're all kind of in process and we're all kind of moving forward, that there's great latitude, there, there's great room to live kind of marginal, kind of, kind of moderately moral lives that are, that are kind of passive and kind of active at the same time and, and kind of moving down the road. But, 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 but here's the thing. The Bible says that the way of destruction is wide and narrow, but the way of life uh, excuse me, wide and broad, the way of life is very narrow. And our fear and, and the criticism against those who trust in Jesus Christ is, well, you're so narrow-minded, which really we should take as a compliment. Because the way of life is narrow. It's not broad. It's not compromised. It's not, it's not marginal. It's not middle ground. It is all for Christ. It is to live to exalt Christ. Why? Because we've been transformed. Because the old person that we used to be, that was caught up in sin and under bondage to sin and lived for self, that old person hasn't just been pushed aside, it's been destroyed. And now we are a new person. We've been born again. Nicodemus said, do, oh, do I enter back in my mother's womb? He said, no, you're, you're a new person. You're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are what? Tell me, a new creation. Old things are what? Passed away. All things become new. So this is not just we're kind of, we're kind of altered. Uh, we had spiritual plastic surgery. So, so our nose is a little different and our eyebrows are a little different. We got Botox. That's not salvation. Salvation is not modification. Salvation is transformation. From old to new, from death to life, it's completely different. So Paul writes and he says, look, this requires a new way of thinking and a new way of living and new priorities and new desires and new actions. But that's not how we always live. So many times there is, there is more conformity to culture than courageous nonconformity to, uh, to culture and conformity to Christ. So, so that's the temptation. So the word of God addresses it. Let's see what this text says to us because this text is wonderful and this text is encouraging to us. It begins with one powerful truth that's an, a, a reminder and a reassurance to us. There's one truth and then there are seven applications. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to preach till 12. But, but there's one truth, and there's seven applications. And the applications are either evidence or an indictment. The seven applications are either evidence of being more complete in Christ or an indictment of not being complete in Christ. 
And Paul presents this out as a way to understand the work that Christ has done in us. So let's start Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, notice again, and we need to understand with this book more than any other of Paul's letters, that Paul is writing to mature, strong, faithful believers. This church is not divided. It's not carnal. These people aren't in crisis. There's nothing that he has to scold them about theologically or practically. They're, they're a meat and potatoes church. They're, they're a church that he can look at and go, you know, Corinth is messed up and Thessalonica's got its problems. But Philippi, you guys are strong. So this is not written to, to, uh, as an example of how we grow in Christ. This is written as an example of what it looks like to be in Christ. And as we move on to maturity, our faithfulness to the Lord and our faithfulness to our walk is always going to be tested. There are two ways our faithfulness is tested. One is it's threatened and challenged by temptation. Temptation challenges our trust. Temptation challenges our faithfulness. Temptation undermines our confidence. Temptation goes after our obedience. So there will always be temptation. Until we get to heaven, and won't it be a wonderful day, there will be spiritual warfare until the day we die. When we get to heaven, there will be no more spiritual warfare. God has complete victory. The enemy can't touch us anymore. But while we're here, our faithfulness will be threatened and challenged. But there's a second type of testing, and that's the testing and refining from the Lord. Because the Lord is constantly working to uncover the true health of our walk. He's going to take our spiritual temperature. He's going to look at the condition of our heart because he's not swayed by outward appearance. He's swayed by the heart. So he looks, how strong is Paul Rhodes at resisting sin? How much does Paul Rhodes trust me? How much does he fight for righteousness? How much does he resist temptation? How much does he uh, live according to my spirit? How much does he yield to me? How much does he call on my name? All those things God is constantly refining and testing because he owns me, and I pray he owns you. And while he's done the work of redemption, and while he's taken ownership, and while there's no question whatsoever, you don't have to have any doubt this morning, that if you've trusted in Christ, that he's declared you righteous, that he's declared you a child of God, that he's promised that you are secure in your salvation for all eternity— while that is all true, we're not in heaven yet. And because we're not in heaven yet, we are facing this constant testing and this constant refining to be like Christ. And sin is still battling us. So what do we do? 
what does the testing reveal about us? Now, we're going to look at the characteristics in a moment, but I want to go back to verse 6 for a minute because there's a great truth here that we touched on a couple of weeks ago that we really need to get strength from this week, okay? Look back at verse 6 for a minute. For I am confident, notice the verbs, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now look at a couple key phrases in verse 6. First of all, notice that it says that the Lord has begun a good work in believers. Now, a couple ways we could view this. Paul could be saying, well, Philippi, you've gotten a great start, and the church has gotten set up there in that city, and uh, this is a call to really press forward and to be consistent and to be focused and to be passionate and to be evangelistic because the city around you is carnal. Uh, he could be saying, God, Philippi has, has, has started this work in you, and he'll be faithful to complete it. And that may be true, but there's a very personal aspect to the verse 2, that, that even if it has a double meaning, this has a greater emphasis. And look at it again. It's the emphasis on the expectation of spiritual growth in every believer. Because the Lord is doing that work. Every believer, everyone who's proclaimed the name of Christ, everyone who has given their life to Christ, has the expectation, and let me add a positive word to it, and the privilege of maturing in their faith. We have the expectation and the privilege of conforming to Christ. We have the expectation and the privilege of having the power of God to equip us to do that. So make sure we don't glide past the spiritual principle here because it might seem like it has some exceptions, but it doesn't. The spiritual principle out of verse 6 is that because the Lord is doing the work of completing us, listen now, this is hard, because the Lord is doing the work of completing us, if we are not maturing daily, then we really are not living in the will of God. Because Christ's whole work is to complete us. He who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Look unto Jesus, the author, and tell me, finisher of our faith. In other words, God started this work. He's declared us righteous. We're secure forever. There's no question. But while we're still here, there is a work of conforming to Christ and becoming more and more complete. So because Christ is doing that, because the Holy Spirit's enabling that to happen, if we are not progressing, then we really are not in the will of God. We're out of the will of God. We're walking in disobedience to Him. But because he has done the work, it's ongoing. And he will never, ever, here's the powerful truth out of verse 6. He will never lack in power or faithfulness to help us. Never as a believer do I have to say, well, I've got to gut it out today and try my best and just do everything I can and, and try to be holy. God says, uh-uh, I've given you the power to be holy. I have given you everything you need pertaining to life and to godliness. Now it is time, Paul, now it is time, believer, to move on to completion. Now, sometimes we can't measure that. Sometimes it's hard to discern. We can look back five years and say, wow, I've really grown in five years. Or we look back five years and we say, eh, I don't 
don't know. I've kind of been back and forth. Some of us know progress. Some of us don't know progress. Sometimes it's hard to evaluate from one day to the next. But here's the thing. The Lord wants to accomplish the work of completing us spiritually. I've used this analogy uh, many times with married couples who are struggling, but I think it's, it, it applies here. Uh, think of your life, think of your spiritual life like a railroad track. Now, if you've ever stood and, and, uh, like in the country and really looked at a railroad track, you know that as it moves toward the horizon, what happens? It comes to one point, right? So what is separated as you stand in the middle of the track, and be careful of this because there might be a train coming, but as you stand in the middle of the track and there's a rail here and there's a rail here, but as it moves toward the horizon, the rails seem to come together as one. Now, this is an analogy of what we're supposed to be like as we move on to completion. As we move toward the horizon spiritually uh, with our lives, as we move toward the future, we are supposed to become one with Christ. There's supposed to be a unity there that, that we now, as we move toward our future, aren't, aren't separated from the Lord. We become one in Christ. So moving on to holiness, moving on to faith, fully aligned to Christ, so that as people look at our lives, there's no differentiation between us and Him. But how many times does our spiritual life look like a rail yard in Chicago. Tracks are going this way and that way and that way and behind us and forward and out to the side and kind of over here, over there. And, and if you change it, it goes that way. And it's just, it's just kind of like, ah, because we haven't focused on becoming like Christ. So many other things vie for our priority. So many other things vie for our heart. But, but God says, I've begun a good work in you. I will be faithful to complete it. Now you've got to be part of that completion process. Now you have got to get your heart aligned. And I'll give you the power to do it. I'll give you the spirit to convict you to do it. I'll give you the spirit to teach you to do it. I'll surround you with other believers that will build you up to do it. Now you've got to do it. And we can say, well, there are other things. And I've got a lot going on. And I'm very busy. And my, my heart's distracted. That's all true. That's true for all of us. But he's begun to work in us, and he wants to complete it. So the question that we have, to, we have to bring forth before any of it is, has God started that work in me? Do you know the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Is the Lord everything to you? Or is it just kind of part of your life? Say, well, I, I prayed a prayer in, in 1986, and I attend church, and I serve, and, and, and you know, so, so next question. But, but here's, the real, here's the real question that all of us have to analyze. Is, is knowing and loving Christ deeply rooted in who I am? Is it my unwavering conviction? Is it impossible to separate me? from my faith in Christ and my life? Are my words and beliefs and actions all aligned with each other? And the way we know if that's true, the way we know that God really has our heart is that then we will be steadily maturing in every aspect of our lives because God's work is never stagnant. It's never passive. It is always discernible. There's always evidence of it. And he says, I'm faithful. I'm going to complete it. I'm going to push you forward. My fingerprints should be on every aspect of your life. So when people look at you, they say, that person knows Jesus Christ. 
Think how much that's not true of the American church right now. That when we look at believers, we say, I see Jesus, I see Christ, I see the work of the Holy Spirit, I see conviction, I see strength, I see power, I see authority, I see boldness, I see a love for the Lord, I see prayer, I see witnessing. It's, it's all there. There's worship coming out of that person because they know Christ. That's not idealism. That's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So how do we get to that? How do, we, how do we get to that now as we move toward the horizon? Well, look back at the text because verses 9 to 11 give us seven distinctive marks of maturation that Paul prays will be accomplished in the lives of the Philippian believers and in the church. I want to take just like a minute or two on each one. I promise I'll go fast. But these seven things that should distinguish us, that are the mark of becoming complete in Christ, of maturing in Christ, these seven things are kind of the thematic foundation for the rest of the book. So I want to encourage you to write them down. I want to encourage you to pray and study over them this week, to think about them, to do a self-assessment, to say, Lord, be honest with me. How am I doing in this? I need to evaluate this. Is this true of me or is this not true of me? And Lord, if it's not true of me, you need to build this up in me. And I need to make different decisions so I'll move toward completion. Okay? Number one, verse nine. He says, I pray your love may abound more and more. Does your love, does my love overflow? Does love pour out of us? Is there abundance in our lives are we, are we stingy and, and kind of self-centered and, and hesitant to give? Or, or do, we, do we want our way more than we want to sacrifice and yield? Or, or when people look at us and go, man, that person is so loving. They're so gracious. They're so kind. Now, here's what self does in response to that statement. Oh, great. Talk about love. You know what? That's just kind of, that's kind of ridiculous. And the, and, the, and the response that self has is, but I'm right. Why would I love somebody? Why would I yield to somebody? Why would I give to somebody when they're wrong? That's just dumb. See, self isn't a nice person. So why would, why would you love? You're going to be, you're going to be a sap. You're going to be a patsy. People are going to take advantage of you because you're always loving and always sacrificing and always giving to each other. And self demands so much to, to be proven right that many times it damages relationships because our requirement to be fulfilled and to be noticed doesn't have any love to it. So we get angry and we get frustrated. And we get irritated and put out and critical. And we either complain to somebody else or we get internally bitter. And here's the problem with that. That response of self is nowhere in Scripture. There's not one verse we can point to and go, yes, but I'm justified to be like that. The Bible is abundantly clear. And we don't have time to look at all the verses, but they're there. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are to deny self. And we are to sacrifice self. And we are to give and yield and love and do everything that we can 
Jesus himself says, submit yourselves to one another as unto the Lord. Put the other person first. Turn the other cheek. Love as I loved you. Pray and love your enemy for your enemies. He says the greatest two commandments, love me first and love each other as you love yourself. So there's no way around this, and there's a reason why Paul lists this first. If we're going to show evidence of being complete in Christ, then we should exude love. 1 Corinthians 13 says you can do all the wonderful things in the world. You can have spiritual gifts coming out like crazy, but if you don't have love, it's invalid. The greatest preacher, the greatest singer, the greatest servant, the greatest person of prayer, the greatest person that does whatever. They're wonderful, but if they don't have any love, nobody cares. Love has to be underneath everything. And he says, not only that we have it, look at the verse. He says, I pray that it would abound. Oh, I want abounding love in 2015. Love that overflows, love that pours out, love that abounds, that I would be less selfish. And boy, I've got a lot of selfishness in me. We need to pray for that. Second, look at verse 9. This love should have real knowledge and all discernment. Now, those words aren't hyperbole. The Spirit is saying that two marks of being like Christ are that, let me define them, we are precise in our understanding of what is ethical and holy, And that we have spiritual insight that's both intellectual and intuitive. So as this love abounds, as we're becoming more like Christ, then the next step is that God is going to give us a greater understanding of what is holy and what is of the Lord. And in terms of understanding Him and what we're supposed to do, He will give us insight that's both up here and in here. Now that only comes from the Spirit. It doesn't come from books, it doesn't come from songs, it doesn't come from seminars or conferences or the latest pastor or the latest trend. The only way we get what verse 9 talks about is by completely yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And as we separate from the things of the flesh and yield to the things of the Spirit, God says, oh, I got all kinds of things I want to give you. I won't give them to you as long as you're walking in the flesh because I'm not going to fill with holiness what is impure. So when you are walking in purity, that's when I'm going to overflow you. And there will be knowledge and discernment that we can't get out of the world. Remember, we're called aliens. We're not of here. Our citizenship is no longer on earth. And aren't you glad? Because earth is messed up. It is messed up. Wars and beheadings and people getting shot in malls and all kinds of economic mess and political mess and disease and and, and natural. The earth is a mess. Why would we want citizenship here? You're alien. You're strangers to this world. You're heavenly minded. And when you're driven by love, listen, if, if, if... The Spirit of God is Lord of your life. You will never lack wisdom. If the Spirit of God is Lord of your life, you will never lack an understanding of what's holy. Third, I got to move quickly. Verse 10. The believer is moving toward completion, approves what is excellent. 
proves what is excellent. Now, excellence has become a buzzword in Christianity, that we've got to do everything with excellence. And, and there's, a, there's a business thing of Christianity that has taken place now where pastors are reading more about uh, secular leadership books than they are the Word of God. You go to conferences, you go to seminars for pastors. It's all about this. It's all about leaders and developing leaders and read this book by this person, this book by this person, take this seminar and do this and do this and this. And what is remarkably lacking, not that there's anything wrong with those things, what's remarkably lacking is we're not coming here first and saying, what did Jesus tell us? Listen, trends come and go. That's why we don't follow them. The word of God is immutable. It stays the same. It tells us what to do. So, the believer is approving what is excellent, not by the standard that the world measures excellent. Listen, Donald Trump is an incredible businessman. You may not like him and you may not like his hair, but the guy knows what he's doing. He's got a lot of money. He's been successful in business. He's very capable and very, uh, very uh, powerful and very well-known, but I don't find him to be holy. The Bible says here in verse 10, look at it, the meaning is to test, examine, and recognize as genuine what is good and what is evil. And that is so much more critical than it's ever been when morality in our world is so blurry Paul says in chapter 4, we'll study it in a couple months, only think about what is true and right and pure and lovely and has a good reputation and is excellent and is worthy of praise. We can't understand those things if we're not walking wholeheartedly with the Lord. And the enemy is counting on us to not even ask for this type of wisdom. The enemy is counting for us to go through day by day by day in our routine, just trying to get by, trying not to be stressed, trying to get everything done, trying to get the kids to school, trying not to go crazy, trying to get rid of this winter and get some sunshine and warmth and not go nuts. How many, did I describe everybody's week okay? And the enemy is counting on us not to say, Lord, in the midst of this chaos, I need your wisdom. In the midst of this chaos, I need to understand what you want, and I need you to give me discernment on what is pure and holy and right and acceptable and excellent. And Lord, I only want to live by those things. Then we see fourth and fifth in verse 10. The completed believer is sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The words are very similar. One means pure and untarnished by sin. That's what it means to be complete in Christ. The other one means without offense and not causing others to stumble. Now take 30 seconds on each one. As we evaluate ourselves, we can't pull back. We can't take back our past sin. It's already been done. But this is not talking about never sinning. It's talking about our heart. Our heart should be pure because we are joyfully living in the new nature that Christ has secured and the Spirit has given. Or, on the opposite, are we still living a blemished life that, that embraces sin and allows the sins that so easily beset us to keep being part of our lives, not moving on to maturity, but just kind of cycling and cycling and cycling. He says the completed believer is pure and untarnished by sin, and then he's without offense, or she, because she or he is not causing other people to stumble. When people are around you, are they more built up in their faith or are they more torn down? It's very simple. 
Do people come close because they go, I know I'm going to get a word of encouragement. I know that person's going to pray for me. I know that person's even going to challenge me and call me out on some things because that's what I need. I need the body to support me and build me up. Or are they going to come close to you and go, well, they're going to criticize me and they're going to tear me down and they're going to say things about me. Who wants to be around that? Who wants to be around people that are going to drag us down and pull us away from being holy? Our goal, our, our, our work that Christ is doing is to make us sincere and blameless. So when Jesus comes, he goes, oh, well done. You did wonderful. You exceeded what most people do. Not that it's a contest. Listen to what I'm saying. That, that when we stand before Christ, he doesn't go, Whew. He looks at us and he goes, Yes, yes, yes. You understood. You knew that I was doing a work to complete you, and you chose to be pure and holy and blameless, and you chose to walk with me, and you chose to yield to my spirit, and I gave you the power to do that. That wasn't in your strength. That was in my strength, but you yielded to it. And notice the time frame, sincere and blameless, until the day of Christ. That could be today. Everything is lined up. There is nothing left. Jesus can appear today, and everything's been fulfilled. And we can see exactly what Revelation talked about. When we disappear, when we go to heaven, the world is going to descend into such chaos and everything that Revelation talks about is already lined up. Until the day of Christ, be pure and be blameless. Start edifying, start strengthening each other because this is what we have to do until Christ returns. Two more, quickly. Verse 11, he says, the believer moving toward completion is filled with the fruit of righteousness. I love that concept of being filled with fruit. It's the tangible evidence of a transformed life, and it should be obvious, and it should be overflowing. So what does the spiritual fruit look like in your life today, February 8, 2015? What does your fruit bowl look like? We have a fruit stand in our kitchen, and sometimes it's, it's missing a fruit that we all want. We're like, oh, do we have any? Ah, uh, we don't have any of that. Or other times, if you leave the fruit in there too long, I know this happens to nobody but us, right? You, you leave the fruit in there too long, and you go in like, you know, like two weeks later, and you're like, I don't even know what this was. And it's rotten, because it was unused. What's the fruit in our life? Are we absent from the body? Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, putting other things in priority? Make it once in a while, but, but we're, we're kind of, I don't know. Or, or are we squandering the call to be fruitful? And things are kind of getting sour and rotten because we haven't taken it upon ourselves to say, I'm going to be fruitful. Now, do we do all this for ourselves? Is this just so, well, I can look good and, and yeah, I got to do these things? No, here's the bottom line. Here's the seventh reason. And the seventh reason is the most important reason. The completed person, the person who's moving on to maturity, the person who wants to be like Christ, 
doesn't think about their acclaim or their credit or what people are going to think about them. Look at what verse 11 says. We do this to the glory and praise of God. How many of our thoughts and actions fall under those guidelines? That today, what I'm doing right now is going to be to glorify and praise God. I can name you a hundred things off the top of my head that I did that, don't, that didn't, didn't have that mindset. To the glory and praise of God. How much we think that way, how much we live that way, how much that is part of our DNA and what we're doing will determine and indicate how mature we are. Because when we are under the full control leading of the Holy Spirit, we will walk like Christ. He who began a good work in you. Now, listen, he's faithful to complete it. He's faithful to complete it. And until Christ appears, our responsibility, our calling, our privilege, our joy as people who have been pulled out of the bondage of sin, our joy is to live this way. So when we stand before him and he says, what have you done with your life? We say, Philippians 1. Philippians 1. You are completing the work in me, and Lord, by your grace, I'm so thankful for your power and so thankful for your mercy, and I'm so thankful for your Holy Spirit who guided and directed me. But Lord, I've lived that way because I love you, and I wanted to be like Christ. Oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I was like Christ. Let's close our eyes. Take just a minute. I know this has been a challenging word. I know there are times it has not been easy. It's confronted us on some things, but listen. The Lord is good and he's gracious. He's gracious. There's not one of us this week that didn't sin. There's not one of us this week that didn't fail the Lord. But God is gracious. That's why he gives us mercy new every morning. God has begun a great work in us. He is moving us to completion. And I want to challenge and encourage each of us. I want to challenge and encourage myself this morning by the Spirit that we be passionate and aggressive about coming like Christ. No more passivity. No more weakness. No more indifference. No more distraction. A lot of things that are going to be competing for our attention. And the enemy is going to be relentless. As soon as we walk out the door this morning, he's going to say, that was nice. That doesn't apply to you. Go back to what you're doing. Never mind what that word said. He's a liar. Our calling as believers is to be like Christ. To exalt Christ in every way. And we won't even have to try to live a joyful, contented life if we're doing that. Because it'll naturally flow from us. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've never trusted him with your life, I want to challenge you and, and invite you to do that this morning. 
I can't save you and you can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only by his mercy, only by the sacrifice where he took sin upon himself and killed it. And then rose from the grave to defeat sin and death forever. If you trust in him and you ask him to forgive your sins, he will do that. You will be a child of God forever. And you'll know what a joy it is to know the Lord. If you do that this morning, if you're praying that right now, I want to ask you, please, come talk to me after the service or ask somebody close to you, say, can you tell me more about this? I prayed that this morning. You're going to want to run out the door and not tell anybody. But listen, if that's what you've done, you can tell somebody right now. So as soon as we're done, you turn to the person next to you and say, I want, can you help me? I want, to, I want to talk about what it means to trust Christ. We'd love to talk to you and pray for you. Believers, what a great calling. What a great calling we have. God has not left us alone. He's strengthened us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this great calling that we have. We thank you for the work that you have begun in us. Lord, we couldn't have done it ourselves. You're the one who saved us and redeemed us. You're the one who's transformed us. Now, Lord, our calling and our privilege is to be like Christ. And Lord, give us a resilience and a fight in our spirit to resist sin. To not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, that we would be passionate and aggressive and joyful and excited about being like Christ. Lord, stir our hearts. Stir every one of us that knows you. May this not be a week like last week. May, be it, may it be a week where we are stirred for you. Where we're walking with you. Where we're trusting in you, Lord, like we have never before. We thank you and praise you for this work that you've begun. And we look forward to the day when it'll be complete. And we can stand before you and you say, well done. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.